Mark Price as a starting guard for the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's my privilege to meet Mark when he was a freshman at Georgia Tech. His wonderful testimony about how the Lord used him. His dad coached for a number of years in the NBA as an assistant coach, last, I think, with the Phoenix Suns. And when Mark signed with Georgia Tech, he had a strong commitment to Christ. He was a pure shooter. In high school, he would probably average 40 points a game. I mean, that's just give Mark the ball and let him shoot. But when he went to Georgia Tech to play on the level at the ACC, he was told by Coach Crimmins, Mark, you're, you're a great shooter. You, you've already established that. But I'm going to make you a great defensive player. Because to be a total player, you have to know how to play both ways. You can be a good shooter, but you've got to be a good defensive player. In fact, what he said I'm going to do is I'm going to make you ultimately into a point guard. And then you're going to run the offense. You're going to make sure that this thing works like it's supposed to work. I remember sitting in the stands about five rows from the floor the night that Georgia Tech in a triple overtime at midnight beat Virginia when Ralph Sampson was a senior and Mark Price was a freshman. There was a lot of excitement that night. And I noticed something about that team as I watched them in my time in Marietta. There was not an individual concept. It was a team concept. It wasn't Mark and the rest of the guys. There were a lot of other guys. There was a guy that followed him named Bruce Dalrymple. Some of these guys never made it in college ball, but, but uh, Dwayne Farrell and other guys that came along, and they blended into a team. What we have before us tonight in Colossians chapter 4 is a team of individuals that were all leaders in their own right. They all had something to contribute, but they blended together to make a beautiful picture of how a team is supposed to work. You see, if all you've got is individuals, you can never win consistently. But if you have a team concept, and you can begin to win with a team concept, then things begin to happen for the good of the overall team, not just for the good of one or two people on the team. And the accolades begin to be spread out, and the, and the expansion of the program begins to grow. Why? Because the team is concerned about the team. Now, in verse 7, we're going to pick up and we're going to conclude uh, these verses in Colossians tonight. We're going to look at Paul's staff. These are verses that we quite honestly don't read very much. Paul lists a lot of people that we can't really pronounce their names. He tells us a little bit about them. And we think, well, you know, that, that's not really important. Paul's just kind of closing the letter out. You know, it's kind of like trying to get off the phone with somebody. He's just, he's just trying to wrap it up. This is not really a big deal. You know, let's move on and, and get in another book. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians or, and let's get into something meaty. And I would contend to you that we miss some great truth in Scripture because we bypass things that seem to be on the surface not important. But under the inspiration of the Spirit and under the authority of God, they became a part of the inerrant Word of God. And I would submit to you that what Paul says about these people in the book of Colossians is just as important to our understanding of the gospel and of Jesus Christ and of our purpose on this earth as John 3.16 is. Because he's telling us about the people that God uses. 
He's telling us how to build a winning team. And you cannot neglect or overlook or ignore these verses on your way to some juicy stuff. So let's get right into it. And we're going to jump around a little bit so you can just kind of keep your Bibles open. I'm not going to read it all at one time. We're going to go back and forth and back and forth through these verses. First of all, if we're going to have a winning team, we have to have players with a team concept. Now let's just do a little biblical backup here and start with Moses. God sent Moses to deliver his people from Pharaoh. But he sent with Moses Aaron to encourage him. You remember when they got out of the land of Egypt and they were moving toward the promised land and everything was overwhelming him and Jethro came and said, Moses, you can't do all this on your own. You need to set aside 70 judges to help you judge Israel. You remember David? There's a great passage of Scripture that I would encourage you to look at sometime. We won't do it tonight. But 2 Samuel chapter 23, and verses 8 through 39, David's mighty men are listed there. It is a listing, if you will, of David's staff, of those that he surrounded himself with, and they are called mighty men. They are said to be valiant and said to be warriors. And he divided up his leadership among them. And in 2 Samuel, two times, it says, the Lord brought about a great victory because of David's mighty men. David was a great man after God's own heart, but he surrounded himself with great men. And those men brought great victory to the cause of God because they were committed to David and to the Lord. The Lord Jesus had 12 disciples. He poured his life into them. He trained them. He taught them. Paul had his own team. We're going to look at one of those listings now. His team varied sometimes from church to church, but most of these people that he lists in the book of Colossians were with him throughout his ministry at one point or another. I've begun to think not only in the Bible, but about other people. I believe that one of the reasons that Billy Graham has the effective ministry that he has is nearly everyone with him in a top leadership position has been with him since the 1950s. Cliff Barras, in his own right, could have been an evangelist. And yet he chose to submit himself to Billy Graham and to work with Billy Graham as a song leader. Cliff Barras is a much better preacher than he is a song leader. But he chose to do that because he had a vision for what God had called Billy Graham to do. T.W. Wilson and others that are around the Graham organization all have been with him 30 and 40 years. Why? Because they caught what God was doing in a man and they attached themselves to it. And rather than going out and doing their own thing where they may or may not have been successful, they said, we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. That's the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. When I think about Sherwood, I think about us committing ourselves to something that is bigger than we are. And it takes men who are committed to a team spirit. Now, there's another aspect of this, and that is that the players have to have a team objective. If you've got your bulletin with you, I want you to get it out, and I want us to look at it again. The team objective is found in the mission statement that is printed on the front of your bulletin, and I want us to look at that together. Right under the name of the church, Sherwood Baptist Church, let's read it together. Was established to reach the whole world with the whole word, motivated by a passion for Christ and a compassion for all people. Now, 
that's either what we're here for or it's not. But we are a great commission church. We don't debate it. We don't discuss it. We don't vote on it. It's what we are as a church. It is sealed up for us in Scripture that we are to be this kind of church. That God has called us to reach and teach and train and disciple people and baptize them and to go into all the world with the gospel. All of that is built into us with a team objective. Now I want you to look at, at a phrase in verse 11 and verse 12 of Colossians chapter 4 when we talk about players with a team objective. Verse 11, he talks about fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So the first objective, according to what Paul writes here, is that we have an objective to work for the kingdom. Now he's not talking about the kingdom that we do at Easter. He's talking about the kingdom, God's kingdom overall, the Great Commission. We have an objective to work for the kingdom. Now, let's say you sing in the youth choir or the children's choir or the adult choir. When you go to rehearsal, you all sing the same song. At least we hope you do. Because it's going to be chaos if you don't. You see, when a minister of music stands before a choir, he has to demand that everybody do the same thing, be on the same page, and sing the right notes, or it's chaos. He has to do that. Why? Because the goal is to reach the objective, and the objective is to get that song out. He's got to get it done. He wants everybody on the same page. When we come together in Bible study, we want everybody on the same page. We don't want a church where we look like the book of Judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes and there was no king in Israel. Our objective is to work for the kingdom. Now, I'm not sure that every church understands that. There are a lot of churches with different agendas, and everybody in the church seems to have a different agenda and a different plan. There are churches with all kinds of beliefs, but we have one objective, and that is to work for the kingdom. Now, I don't believe, as I look at Paul's team, that there was any doubt in the team member's mind about where Paul was going and what he was going to do. I don't think they got around the campfire and said, well, Paul, you know, we don't really like to go on missionary journeys. <laughs> well, then you can stay here, because I'm going on a missionary journey. I think Paul's team understood where he was going, why he was going there. They understood his heart. They knew what they were there for. And they had specific assignments that made them effective and efficient. Now, the church can have a lot of ideas that are not effective or efficient. We've got to decide what is effective and what is efficient for building up the kingdom of God. What does the best job and the best resources and the best use of our people in building up God's kingdom in this world beginning right here. The second objective, he lists in verse 12, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So the second objective is to fulfill God's will. The church's prayer ministry, and when we're involved in intercession, one of the things that should constantly be in our prayers and on our hearts is that this church would stay centered in the will of God. Say, well, I don't know what's out there ahead of us. I don't either. But all I want to do is stay centered in the will of God. If I'm centered in the will of God, then what's ahead of us is in God's will. If I get off the road of God's will, then what's ahead of us is what I've created. But if we stay in the center of God's will, 
then our objective is to fulfill that will and to know where we're going and what we're doing and how we're going to get there. So how did Paul do that? Well, he had some team meetings. He had some team meetings to talk about what was going on in Colossae. There were representatives from the church that came and talked to him while he was in prison. And he was aware of the needs and he was aware of the concerns and the dangers and the false teachers. And so he he had a goal and that was to present every man complete in Christ. Don't you think it's the will of God to present every man complete in Christ? It's the will of God. To present every man, not just a few, but every man. And so to do that, to fulfill God's will, we have to have an objective to fulfill His will, to work for the kingdom. We have to be focused. We have to walk by faith. We have to be clear on where we're going. And I can tell you this, as far as I know my heart and as far as I understand what the will of God is for me at this point in my life, I am assured today more than ever that I am exactly where God wants me to be to fulfill His will for my life. This is where God has told me to plant deep roots. This is where God has told me to dig deep and hold on and stay with the stuff. And I'm committed to what God wants to do in this church. Now let me tell you something, folks. It would be a lot easier for me not to do this. A lot easier. I could stay here and be nice and preach sweet sermons and just love everybody and be tender and kind-hearted and never lay down the line and never draw the line in the sand and never say this is what we've got to do. These are the expectations that God has for us and you love me and I'd love you and all we'd be sweet and kind and go out and eat yogurt after church on Sunday nights and everything would be wonderful and we could just kind of bide our time and hold our own and keep everything's about where they are right now and I could hold on for two or three more years and then maybe some big church come along and then I'd go there and I could go do something else. That's the easy way out. That's not God's way. And see, you need to understand something about me. I did not come here looking to go anywhere else. I came here looking for what God wanted to do here and how He wanted to use me to be a part of that. Not all of it, just a part of it. See, the easiest thing for me to do is never to be confrontational. In fact, sometimes Satan plays on me at that point. And says, Cat, man, this is a great church. I mean, this is the way the devil talks to me. You got a great church. You got great people. You mean, you don't get hardly any hate mail. Nobody ever is ugly to you. Nobody spits in your direction. I mean, everybody's kind of nice. You know, why do you want to mess with the system? I'll tell you why. Because we've gotten too comfortable in our system. And we need to be shaken and broken and spilled out before God and said, God, don't let us sit here and coast our way to the kingdom of God in heaven. Let us be workers in a field that is full of work. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to give my life to. And I tell you, there are some moments in all of this in the last six or eight months, I thought, God, do I really want to do this? And God said, if you want to do what I'm telling you to do, you better do that. There's only one thing that I fear more than anything else, and that would be God would be displeased with my ministry. I fear that more than anybody not understanding what I say. I fear that more than anybody being mad about what I say. I fear that more than public opinion. I fear that more than what the community thinks about me. I fear that somehow I would stand before the judgment seat of Christ and God would say, Cat, you missed it all, what I had for you to do. 
So I have an objective to fulfill the will of God. And I'm asking you to join me in an objective to fulfill the will of God. As we look at our philosophy and what it tells us to do, then our, our face is set toward getting up to the plate and getting into play and doing what God's called us to do. Thirdly, there are players with a team spirit. Now, we talked about that this morning, but I want you to look at some aspects of being a player with a team spirit. First of all, it is a spirit of clear communication. Verse 7, As to all my affairs, Tychicus will bring you information. Paul didn't have any hidden agendas. There was clear communication. If you're going to have team spirit, you have to have clear communication. Now, nobody has ever accused me that I know of of not saying what's on my mind. When my mother was alive, she'd say, I wish you wouldn't say those kind of things. That mantle has passed on to my wife. Who wishes sometimes I wouldn't say those kind of things. But, you know, somebody said to Steve Moore one day, said, you know, so, so we just can't figure out Michael. <laughs> can't figure out what he's up to. Can't figure out what he's about. And he said, my goodness. He said, man, he pours his heart out to you every week in the communicator. If you ever want to know what Michael Catt thinks, read the front page of your church mail out. He tells you whether you like it or not. You see, there has to be clear communication. What we're trying to do, and what I'm trying to do is my part of this, is to communicate over these weeks very clearly where we're going in general terms, and then we're going to get all this fleshed out with some very detailed specifics in the weeks and months that are ahead. Second thing, there has to be a spirit of compassion. Do you ever think Paul was a tough old apostle? I got a feeling Paul was tough. I've always wondered what it would be like to interview to be on Paul's staff. Well, wow, got a nice looking resume there, son. Yeah, sure. I appreciate that. Graduated from seminary. Yep, sure did. Got 3.5. I've never seen anybody that looked at what a grade point was in a seminary. Because they don't teach you anything there anyway. So, uh, I had to spend 15 years unlearning what the seminary taught me. And said, well, you know, that looks good. So, okay, now here's what I need you to do. I need you to be willing to, uh, uh, looks like on our horizon we've got a shipwreck and you're going to have to float out in the middle of the ocean for a while. You up for that? Uh -oh. What are my other options? Well, we're going to Ephesus. Good chance that we're going to be thrown stones at and we're going to be left for dead. <laughs> I got any other options? Well, you know, one time I was in a town and I got led over a wall in a basket because it's the only way I could get out and save my life. How about that? You want to do that? that? That's what we do on staff retreat. We go to towns and try to get out of town in a basket before they kill us. Hmm. You see, Paul had a spirit of compassion because look at what he says about the men that were around him. Verse 7, Tychicus, our beloved brother. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. Verse 9, verse 14, Luke, the beloved Position. Now, look at verse 8. Paul talks about Tychicus. He says, I have sent him that he may encourage your hearts. Now, I want you to see these words here because they're important. He talks about these three men. He says, they are beloved. They are dearly loved. I dearly love these people. And then he says, I have sent him that he may encourage your hearts. The Colossians needed some encouragement. So what did Paul do? Paul sent one of his staff members and said, I'm going to send him and he's going to encourage your heart. 
Now, the truth of the matter is, folks, there are guys on this staff that are better at encouraging people's hearts than I am. And sometimes it's better if one of them goes instead of me. Just like everybody's not good at hospital visitation and everybody's not good at youth ministry and everybody's not good at working with singles and everybody's not good at working with babies, not everybody's good in certain ministries. And Paul said, now here's a guy over here I got on my staff and I'm going to send him over there because they need to be encouraged and I'm going to send him when he gets through with them, they're going to be encouraged. You know why I think Paul did that? I think Paul knew he'd get over there and say, what's wrong with you bunch of belly acres and whiny babies? Why don't y'all straighten up a little bit? And he knew that wasn't going to be cool, wasn't going to be the way it needed to come across. So he said, I tell you, I'll send somebody who will encourage him. You know what Paul recognized? He recognized it's more important to practice spiritual gifts than it is to write about them. Send people who have an ability to minister in those situations. Verse 11 talks about Jesus, justice, and Mark. He says, they prove to be an encouragement to me. It's a spirit of compassion. They prove to be an encouragement to me. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian's love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. You see, not only did Paul say, I'm going to send somebody to be an encouragement to you, but God sent somebody to be an encouragement to me. There are people in this church that always, always find ways to encourage me. I don't know why they do it. But they find ways. It's the right time for a pat on the back. It's the right time for a note. It's the right time for a card. It's the right time for a phone call. And just it's, it's almost like the Holy Spirit says, you know, he's about on the limit. He needs a little word. And they are sensitive to doing that for me. I can't tell you what kind of encouragement it was to me to get the cards and the letters and the phone calls and the comments that you made when my mom died. You see, that was an encouragement. You were like... Jesus, Justice, and Mark in my life. You encouraged me at a point when I needed encouragement. You see, it's easier for me to give it than it is to take it. My personality is I don't receive as well as I can probably give sometimes. It's hard for me to receive. It's hard for me to know what to say. And you ministered to me at a point in my life when I needed it. You see, part of generating a, a team spirit is that there is a spirit of compassion for one another and we encourage one another and we help one another. The third thing is there's a spirit of a common call. Now let's just walk through these. Verse 7, the spirit of a common call. Notice the little phrase, a fellow bondservant. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. Verse 11, he talks about fellow workers. Now I think this is important because we don't just need workers, we need fellow workers. You see, Paul wasn't saying, I've got this ministry and I've got this plan and I've got this idea and I'm having to drag all these guys along and I'm having to bring them along and it's like a chain around my legs and they're like dead weight and I just keep having to pull them along and I can't figure out why these people know. He says, they're my fellow workers. They're my fellow prisoners. They're my fellow servants. Why? They were in it together. There was a sense of common call. These people were in this ministry together. They all had the same vision. They were shoulder to shoulder and arm in arm. Fourthly, there's a spirit of commitment. <laughs> I found an illustration in the church newsletter. I get about 70 church newsletters. I always like to read what the competition's doing. And uh, I go through those pretty quickly because I don't read most pastor's columns because they all begin with like, wasn't Sunday a wonderful day? And I'll tell you, when a guy's done that 52 weeks out of the year, I know he's a liar. Because not every Sunday is a wonderful day. So I know something's wrong with that guy. But I found this little thing in a church newsletter. It, there was a circle. 
It was on white paper, and there was just an outline of a circle drawn on it. And here's what it said. It said, hold this circle to your face and blow on it. If it turns green, call your doctor. If it turns brown, see your dentist. If it turns purple, call a psychiatrist. If it turns red, notify your banker. If it turns black, call your lawyer and make a will. But if it's the same color, there's nothing wrong with you and no reason why you can't be in church Sunday. (laughs) There's a spirit of commitment. You see, I don't think the early church had anything that we don't have. I think they just had a deep, deep commitment to the Lord. We sing to the old rugged cross, I will ever be true, it's shame and reproach gladly bear. And then we shut up the shame and reproach in the hymnal and we put it down in the rack and we go out and we live our comfortable lives. For there to be the kind of team that God wants, there must be a spirit of commitment. I remember uh, youth camps. Youth camps are interesting experiences. I used to do a lot of youth camps where I wouldn't even give an invitation on Thursday night, kind of like I did this morning. Because I got tired of watching young people year after year after year make commitments on Thursday night and Friday night that they had no intention of keeping by Sunday morning. In fact, they would break it before they even got on the bus. So I just made a decision, you know. I don't want Friday night worn out, tired, been up all night, been shooting squirt guns at each other, been playing Mickey Mouse games all week and got so tired that the preacher preached on some little silly story, told a deathbed story, we all got down and cried. Wasn't camp wonderful? We all cried. No, camp was wonderful if y'all came back and did something. See, that's camp wonderful. Camp joke is going out crying and three months later you can't find any of the ones that made promises to God in the church. That's a joke. I'm talking about commitment. I'm talking about people that stay with the stuff. I'm talking about people who aren't quitters. People who will give of themselves and give of themselves when they're hurt, give of themselves when they're weak, give of themselves when they're sick, and they just keep on going. Why? Because this is no time for second-class commitment to a first-class cause. The cause of Christ is first-class. And then finally, I would say that there's not only a spirit of commitment, but a spirit of community. Two times, verses 7 and 17, he says... In the Lord. In the Lord. There's community where? In the Lord. Our community is built around our relationship to the Lord. Some draw a circle that shuts me out. Race and position are what they flout. But Christ in love seeks them all to win. He draws a circle that takes them in. Fourthly, there are players committed to the team's leadership. Players committed to the team's leadership. Now let me just mention this very briefly. Look at verse 7. Paul sent Tychicus to check out the problem. In verse 10, Paul sent instructions ahead about Mark. You remember, Mark had a reputation that he would walk away from Paul and from Barnabas because he didn't want to pay the price on the first missionary journey. So before Mark ever showed up, Paul said, I'm going to write a letter to that church so they know this is not the old Mark, this is the new Mark. In verse 16, he says, I'm taking time to write you a letter and I expect you to read it. Not only do I expect you to read the letter that I write, I expect you to read the one that I wrote to Laodicea because when they get through with it, I've told them to send their letter to you and you send your letter to Laodicea. In verse 17, he talks to 
to Archippus and he says, take heed to the ministry and fulfill it. You know what that sounds like to me? Sounds like a leader. Paul didn't go to Tychicus and say, Tychicus, if, if it's all right, would you please go to Colossae for me? Paul said, go to Colossae. Here's what I want you to do when you get there. I shared with the Sunday school workers last week about Tommy Lane, who's going to be here with us in June for our breakthrough. And, and uh, Tommy Lane was on staff with Dr. R.G. Lee. And uh, R.G. Lee was a straight-laced kind of guy. I mean, the, you know, you just, he, just, he was the old-timey Baptist preacher. And he gave, Tom, he gave Tommy Lane a card one time. He said, Tommy said, this guy visited our church. And he said, uh, he's interested in church. He said, I want you to go see him. So he handed him the card. He said about 20 minutes later, he said, I went back to my office. About 20 minutes later, he said, I went out to get me a cup of coffee. And he said, uh, I saw Dr. Lee in the hallway. And Dr. Lee said, what did he say? And Tommy said, who? He said, the man that I gave you the card 20 minutes ago. What did he say? He said, I hadn't been to see him yet. He said, that's the last time I ever waited to do anything Dr. Lee told me to do. He said, I learned then when Dr. Lee gave me something, he didn't want me to pray about it. He just wanted me to do it. That was Paul's relationship with Tychicus. He said, I got a problem. I need to send somebody. You need to go and you need to go now. Well, I just got back. I've been on the road a long time. Well, pack your bags, get a change of shirt, kiss your wife, hug your kids, and get on the road to Colossae because we've got business to do. You see, one of the things that has to happen is a leader has to lead. One of the things that is wrong with our country and one of the things that is wrong with our churches is that nobody wants to pay the price to lead. I had a guy give me a card one time and said, if you want to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. Leaders have to lead. And when the people, when, when pastors start talking about that, sometimes people get a little uptight. Because they think he's going to be a dictator. I don't think Paul was a dictator. I think just Paul knew where he was going. And he said, if you want to go, let's go. Let's do this. We've got a game plan. We know where we're going. I know where I'm headed. Paul always had an agenda that he was working on to try to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The leader has to lead. I watched uh, David Brinkley today, and uh, I was watching him talk about the Supreme Court nominee and how the president needed somebody that was comfortable and easy and would fly through the process very easily. And I heard Sam Donaldson, of all people. <laughs> Sam Donaldson. Anybody know who Sam Donaldson is? Sam Donaldson and, and Koki Roberts were talking. They said, you know, what's amazing to us is one hour before he makes the announcement, he's sitting in his office bringing up other names of people he might consider. Why can't we have a president who knows how to make a decision and lead? I'll tell you why. Because he's reading his opinion polls and he's not getting a word and sticking with it. You know what's wrong with this country? We don't have anybody that's got the guts to lead. You know what's wrong with churches in this town? They don't have pastors that have the guts to lead them. You know what's wrong with your business? You don't have anybody in your business that says, if you don't want to work here under these conditions, then fine, go someplace else to work. You see, the people who draw the lines get the job done. We don't have time to be syrupy. We have time to do what God told us to do. Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem. He didn't ask the disciples. Did you notice that? 
He didn't say, well, guys, what do you think? You think it's time to go to Jerusalem? He said, it's time to go to Jerusalem. Let's go. One of the things that has happened to Baptist churches is that they begin to practice democracy gone mad and think they ought to be able to vote on everything and, and consider everything and discuss everything. Folks, there's just some things we don't need to discuss. Fulfilling the Great Commission and being the church that God wants to be, we don't need to discuss that. We just need to do it. Now, how we do it may be open to discussion. We may talk about those kind of things and, and have give and take and dialogue and those kind of things, but the fact that we are going to do it is never open to discussion. That's just what the church is about. That's what we're supposed to be about. When I do the membership orientation class, I tell them four things about our church. Sherwood Baptist Church is pastor-led, deconserved, committee function, and congregationally approved. Now, let me explain that to you real quick. Pastor-led. You know why it's pastor-led? Because you let me lead. It's real simple. If you didn't let me lead, I couldn't lead. I lead at the consent of the people believing in the call of God on my life. So that makes me very careful about how I lead. It's deconserved. This is not a deacon-led church. We don't have a deacon board. We have a deacon body. Our deacons minister to widows. They don't, they're not a second finance committee. We got folks that have come into our church and say, well, we, we want a church with a strong deacon body. We want a church where the deacons make all the decisions and you don't want to be a part of this church. It's not what the Bible says. Now, if you can show me in the Bible where it says deacons are supposed to do that, I'm all for it. But the Bible says that deacons are supposed to be men of faith and wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit, and they are supposed to minister to widows and stop arguments in the church. That's their job. Our deacons don't have any problem with that. It's deacons serve. Our deacons serve our widows. They serve the needs of the church. They serve the pastor. They help me. They, I bounce ideas off them. I don't fly through stuff like this without going through the deacons first and saying, you guys okay on this? I'd be stupid. But I have to lead this church. Third thing is committee function. That's really not a good way to put it because we use task force and we use committees. In fact, we've changed the name this year to ministry teams because I hate the name committee. You know, a camel is a racehorse designed by a committee. Jess Moody says the best committee is made up of three people, two of whom are dead. I don't, I don't really like committees. I like ministry teams. It's the finance ministry team. It's the personnel ministry team. Why? Because they are involved, not in committee meetings, they're involved in trying to figure out how we can do ministry around here. You see, then it's congregationally approved. You vote on a budget, we go into some different direction, we build a building, I'm not going to get up and start digging a shovel and not tell you about it. We're going to go through it and we're going to let the congregation approve it. The church votes on a budget once a year and that dictates what we do during that year. And then the committees and the ministry teams and the staff work together to make sure we live within those guidelines. That's what we're trying to do. The leader has got to lead. Now, you, you know me. I'm sharing my heart here. I'm one of those lead, follow, get out of the way kind of people. Because you see, I don't like to sit around with nobody with a game plan. If you don't have one, I'll come up with one. I've always got a plan. I got more ideas in the hopper than we got money to do for people. I'll, I'll come up with something. You know, I, I, I sit in too many I, I sit in too many denominational meetings and watch people that hadn't got a clue what they're going to do next week. Well, where are we going with this? Well, we don't know. And so you want me to waste my time coming to a meeting when you don't even know what you're going to do with this when you get it? No, we don't know. 
or we want you to be committed to it. Listen, I'm not going to commit to anything that somebody's not in charge of. Consensus of apathy is not a way to run anything. The leader has to lead. Secondly, the people should prayerfully follow. Now, Paul says in the last verse, remember my imprisonment. Now, here's how I would apply that. Those who need the most prayer are those who carry the biggest load and stand on the front line of battle. And no leader can lead without the prayers and encouragement of the people that they lead. The reason that I think Joshua was a great leader, and I hope one day I can lead half as well as Joshua could lead. On my biblical personality profile, I'm a Joshua. That's my personality. If you were to get it on a secular profile, I'm, a, I'm on a disc, I'm a high D. I'm a type A person, okay? I, I just got, you know, there's blood on the wall sometimes when I get through, but, you know, that's just, that's me. But Joshua had the people following him, and he said, we're going to go for it. And the people said, God will be our witness. We're going to go with you. The people have to follow. They committed themselves to Joshua. Joshua committed himself to them, and they committed themselves to the Lord's plan. You see, God has vested authority in the called, and I have a responsibility to exercise it, and then you have a responsibility to respect it. And it's real simple. It's real simple. But there has to be a commitment to the team's leader. I know this. The Los Angeles Lakers began to deteriorate when Magic Johnson got to pick the coaches. Players never get to pick coaches. If they do, the coaches can't coach. Can't do it. You just can't do it. If you are serving at the whim of those that you're supposed to be in charge of, then you can't lead. Now, let's look at the last one. Players who are committed to play. Let's just go through the staff, all right? This is Paul's staff. First of all, Tychicus, verse 7. He is mentioned in Colossians 4, Ephesians 6, Acts chapter 20, and Titus chapter 3. Paul says he is a faithful minister, a beloved brother, and a fellow bondservant. Every time you read about Tychicus, he's going somewhere. He is always on the road. He is always on the move. He represented Paul to the people at Colossae. He was an ambassador. He was a courier. He was the one who delivered the letter. When there was trouble, Paul sent Tychicus. I mean, if he had some situation that he knew needed to be handled in a right way, he had Tychicus to help him. Onesimus is mentioned in verse 9. You remember Onesimus? He was the runaway slave. He had been the property of Philemon. Paul wrote a letter to Philemon and said, You know, I met a slave of yours that ran away. And I led him to Christ. And I'm sending him back to you, and I want you to receive him. And I want the church to receive him and to welcome him. Now, what's Paul doing with Onesimus? He is taking a man who was once unfaithful and says he has now become faithful, and you need to forget the fact that he was unfaithful and take him back. The third one is Aristarchus. I hate these names. They're just Why can they name these guys George and... John, Paul, and Ringo or something. I don't know. Aristarchus, verse 10. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20. Now, here's the interesting thing about Aristarchus. You don't think God didn't know that we were going to be around in 1994? You don't think God didn't have things figured out? You don't think God didn't have a plan from the very beginning? 
When Paul took up money for the church in Jerusalem, guess who was his business administrator and handled the finances of the church? Say Aristarchus. Good. He went through the shipwreck. He risked his life. He went through the stoning at Ephesus. Uh, By the way, Tom, uh, Paul got away, but Aristarchus didn't at the stoning at Ephesus. I don't know how to tell you about that, but he was in prison with him. But if you want to look at Paul's staff, Aristarchus was the one who handled the finances of the offerings. He had somebody handling the business. Paul didn't handle that. When I came to this church, I said, listen, I don't want to administrate this church. I don't want to deal with the day-to-day. Most finance meetings, I don't go to. I sat through through one last week with a couple of financial officers, the first time we've sat down and talked in quite a while about those particular kind of things, but most of the time I get my information from Tom, or I get it from Tommy Martin, our finance chairman, or I get it from Tom Sanders, our treasurer, because I don't go to the meetings all the time because I don't need to. We've got a business administrator. We've got an administrator that handles those kind of things. He had a team that had Mark on it. Now, you remember Mark. Mark was the one that quit. He was the one that left on the first missionary journey. He didn't want to pay the price. And there were strong differences between Paul and John Mark. But in 2 Timothy, and you may just want to write out in the margin by this, 2 Timothy 4.11, pick up Mark and bring him to me, for he is useful to me for service. I think there's something significant about Mark. Mark didn't sit around and sulk. He picked himself up and became faithful. And whatever differences there were between Paul and Mark, they were resolved because he said, here I am in prison. This was the last letter, 2 Timothy, that Paul wrote. He said, I'm in prison, and when you come, no matter how far out of the way you've got to go, I want you to stop by and pick up John Mark because he's useful to me for ministry. It's the same word that's used in the book of Acts to describe what Mark did for Paul on the first missionary journey. Paul says he couldn't do it the first time, but I have every confidence that he can do it this time. You see, if two teammates cannot be reconciled, then one or both of them is out of fellowship with God. That's real important for a team to understand. The next one is Jesus' justice. This is the only time that he's mentioned in the New Testament. He was an encourager. He had a behind-the-scenes ministry. Let me give you a little statement about Jesus' justice and about those who carry on behind-the-scenes ministries. There is greatness in the smallest things done in Jesus' name. You say, well, we don't even know anything about it. We don't know what he did. He's just mentioned this one time. Jesus' justice just got his name. There's greatness in the smallest things done in Jesus' name. By the way, there are a lot of people you don't know because they didn't do anything worth getting mentioned in the Bible. Wouldn't you say it's pretty significant that no matter what he did and no matter how insignificant it looked to everybody else, that Paul said, for all time and eternity, Jesus' justice name is going to be stamped in the Holy Word of God. I think that's significant. I think that's significant. The littlest thing you do in the name of Jesus does not go without notice. Then there's Epaphras or Epaphras, whichever one you are. I always want to think Sassafras if you do that, but it's Epaphras. He was a prayer warrior. He was the one who initially took the gospel to Colossae. He was the church representative that the church sent to assist Paul. He was a hard worker. Luke, in verse 14, there are ten players on this team now plus Paul. 
say, oh Lord, the preacher's going to hire three more staff members. Well, we might. Who knows? Somebody's trying to figure out the budget right now. Luke in, in verse 14, we are indebted to Luke because one-third of the New Testament was written by Luke. Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, probably, maybe, the book of Hebrews. If the book of Hebrews was written by Luke, then he wrote more of the New Testament than Paul did. He was a detailed man. He was a detailed man. I mean, he took care of the details. He was a Syrian, a Gentile, a physician, a writer. Paul had to have Luke to keep him going. Now notice what he said. He said, Luke, the beloved physician. He must have used small needles. Or else he was cheap. The beloved physician. But here's where Luke fits in. Luke was the man who took care of all the details. Now as we talk about our ministry philosophy, and as we get closer to that time, you will see that on our ministry philosophy, and it's not on the chart on the front of your bulletin, but there's a dugout and there's a first base coach and there's a third base coach. The first base coach is the administrative pastor. That's Tom Pollock. That's what he does. He runs the finances and facilities of this church. The third base coach is the position that we now try to fill because our philosophy dictates that we do this. We're not looking for a minister of education. You know, Fred Swank said there's more biblical evidence for prostitution than there is for a minister of education. And I'm beginning to believe that because you can't find one that basically knows what they're doing. I'm committed that what the third base coach needs to be is a detailed person that runs the day-to-day operation of the church in the ministering of the staff and administering of the programs. In fact, he's, he's like an executive pastor, but a working title for that position would be the Minister of Development and Deployment. It's to develop ministries and to deploy people out on the field and make sure everybody's playing. Running the day-to-day ministries and operations of the church. That's what Luke was. Luke was the detailed person who said, I'll write down all the details. I'll take care of everything. You don't worry about it, Paul. I'll just make sure it keeps going. Now, then there's Demas. Demas is the one that quit. He left in verse 14, and he went to Thessalonica is what we find out later on. He couldn't take the pressure. He didn't leave the Lord. He just left Paul. Went to Thessalonica, probably joined the First Baptist Church of Thessalonica, and sat on the back row. I hope nobody would notice him. What Demas could have been and what he was are altogether two different things. The truth is there are a lot of Christians who are like Demas who have left the service of God because they love this present world. Nympha was a woman who had a church in her house in verse 15. She lived in Laodicea. There's room in Paul's ministry as he mentioned people for the women who would sponsor Bible studies in their home. Verse 17, Archippus, he was a fellow soldier in the book of Philemon. But I want you to notice, Paul has to prop him up. Archippus is one of those guys that sometimes needed a spiritual kick in the pants. He was not a self-starter. He was not self-motivated. And Paul had to say, Archippus, you need to remember, you're going to be accountable for God for your ministry. Now, all ten of these guys were a part of Paul's team. They were the players that Paul enlisted to help him. They associated with him. And when they did, associating with him was costly. I am grateful that Paul listed his team for us and told us who they were. I'm grateful for the team that God has already assembled in this place. I'm grateful for what God's going to do in the future. 
Because as I have shared with the deacons, one of the things I think that needs to happen is we need to give serious attention to finding help on at least a part-time staff level with preschool and children. That's 40% of our attendance on any given Sunday. You say, well, where are we going to have the money? Well, you won't have to worry about any of that if we don't start taking care of preschoolers and children. We've got to do that. We've got to take care of those folks. We need a third base coach. we got a good staff team. We've spent a week, most of the mornings, talking about it. I shared my heart with them. I shared with them and went through them the philosophy after they'd gone through it privately and in sessions and we'd talked individually about what we were doing and where we were going. And on a Thursday morning at 11 o'clock, I said to our staff, I want every one of you to be on this team. But you're going to have to make the choice. You've got to decide if you want to play ball on this team. If you want to play ball by this philosophy. Because you see, for all of us, it's going to require a greater commitment. Now, it doesn't mean we necessarily have to work harder. We've just got to work smarter. We've got to get more lay people involved in ministry. And I told them very early on in the process, I said, the thing I want you to do when you see this and when we see what we're asking of you, I want every staff member to look at that and say, I can't do this job. I can't do it. There's no way I can do this. Because I said, when you get there, then then you'll start looking around to lay people and say, you're going to have to help me and 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 don't take no for an answer. I asked them to leave on Thursday and spend some time praying and by 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon to put in my box whether or not they felt like they wanted to be on the team. Before 5 o'clock on that Friday afternoon, every member of our staff had put in the box, I'm willing to be a part of the team. Folks, it all begins with us. We're not asking you to do anything that we're not committed to doing ourselves. We're not asking you to play any position that we're not willing to play ourselves. All of this is going to work out in a lot of ways among the staff. The staff philosophy just, quite frankly, fits right over the ministry philosophy. But the first thing you've got to figure out is where do I fit in the ministry philosophy? The staff already kind of has an idea of where they are in all of this. I kind of got an idea of where I am in all of this. But do you have an idea of where you are in all of this? I want you to read the communicator this week because there's going to be a card in there that's going to be very clear about what these positions are. Next Sunday, we're going to have the sign-up and talk about where you can play and how you can play. And you may want to play more than one area. You may have a lot of different interests, but you're going to have an opportunity to sign up for at least one. We've got some big needs ahead of us. We've got to find a third-base coach. One of our men in the deacons meeting said, if what we see before us is true, we needed a third-base coach yesterday. You know what? He's right. Because quite honestly, I have gone about as far as I can go without having somebody to help in that position. I have pushed myself to the limits. The staff has pushed themselves. They have picked up slack in areas that are not their areas that they need to be covering. And the staff is tired and I'm tired. And we have got to have somebody. We've got to have it. I beg you for it. I ask you for it unapologetically. Say, we need you to help us make a difference in this time. We need you to help us do something big for God. We need you to help us that there will be a day when 
when we'll be excited about three being baptized, but we'll be excited when there are days that we got to baptize in all three services because of the people that are coming to Christ. You see, I'm not convinced that we are where we need to be right now. I think we need to be further down the road than we are. All of this is going to have a lot of ramifications. It's going to have ramifications in buildings. It's going to have ramifications in budget and in personnel and all those things. But you see, that's not even the issue in all of this. The issue in all of this is when you help us play. Now, I'm fortunate. When I went into the pastorate, I asked Jimmy Draper, I said, I want you to tell me the biggest issue I'll have to deal with as a pastor and the biggest problem I'll have as a pastor. And he said 95% of all problems in a church are staff-related. He said, if you can get around you a good staff, 95% of the problems in the church will be taken care of automatically. Now you think about it. Whether you like my assessment of this or not, every problem we've had in the four and a half years I've been here have been staff-related. And in particular, one who would not come under the authority of the pastor. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you something. Players either stay with the team and play with the team, or they get traded. That's the way a church has to operate. And it is important for us that you support the men who are here. Because I'm going to tell you something. They went to the wall with their pastor last year. And they stood by me, and they prayed for me, and they encouraged me. And you need to encourage them, and you need to pray for them, and you need to uplift them. Because they've taken their share of blows in all this too. They're good men. They deserve your support. They deserve your prayers. They deserve that we provide for them the best possible so that we can keep them effective in their ministries. And I believe they're going to be the kind of men that are going to help us make a difference here. And i tell you what I think needs to happen. I think the tie between pastor and staff and people in this church needs to be long term. You know, I, I've got a friend of mine who says something. I, I don't think I've ever even used this with the staff before. But I've got a friend of mine who says, when it calls a staff member, he says, now when we call you, we expect you to buy burial plots here. Because that's what we want you to do. We want you to die right here. Now, not now, but we just want you <laughs> on down the road. Folks, I, I think I can speak for them. You're going to have to ask them yourselves. But I think I can speak for the men who are with us. They are with us for the long haul. And we need to be with them. And when they ask you to serve and when you sign up, you need to step up and do what they ask you to do. Because we can't do it all by ourselves. You cannot hire enough staff members to do what we need to do in this church. You can't do it. I'm so grateful Paul had a team with a lot of different people. Don't you know, guys, those staff meetings in Paul's team were interesting. When we have staff meetings in room A, they had staff meetings in prison. There are some things, you know, that parallels there, I guess. I don't know. But I'm grateful for the team that Paul had. But without apology, I'm grateful for the team that God's given us. 
I'm grateful for the deacons that God's given us. I'm grateful for everybody in this church that's working. And I'm most of all grateful that you cared enough about this church to be here tonight. I hope to understand a little more about how God can use you to make a difference in the world. Would you pray with me, please?